Where are you going, Lord? You cannot follow me now where I am going. But later you will follow me. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I am ready to die for you. Are you really ready to die for me? I am telling you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will say three times that you do not know me. Do not be worried and upset. Believe in God. And believe also in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself. So that you will be where I am. You know the way that leads to the place where I am going. Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way to get there? I am the way. The truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. For a long time I have been with you all. Yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I have spoken to you do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. I am telling you the truth. Those who believe in me will do what I do. Yes, they will do even greater things. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask for in my name so that the Father's glory will be shown through the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, every person needs occasional encouragement. I received a couple pieces recently from uh, two friends who gave me the same compliment, saying that I reminded them of Ted Lasso. And if uh, you don't know who that is, the Apple TV American a football coach turned British soccer manager whose dogged optimism wins over the locker room and, and the team as well. And I was flattered for sure. I wondered if it was partly because I have a slightly Southern accent. That's why they were saying this, but I was flattered. But there is a kind of optimism uh, that even I don't tolerate very well. Um, Katie and I were talking about this. My wife Katie and I were talking about this this week. Uh, we were reflecting back on this kind of unbridled optimism. And the same person came to mind for both of us. It was a young woman in our church um, that we were part of like more than a decade ago. And it's a lovely, lovely person, uh, a lovely, ever positive person who adores Jesus. I once heard her though, described her relationship with the Lord as always. Her husband had recently run into some significant trouble at work I knew it must be bothering them. So one, one Sunday, I caught her as she was walking to her car and I was walking to mine. So I turned to her and I asked her, hey, like seriously, like how are you really doing? You know, I try to be like pastoral and caring and this sort of thing. How are you really doing? She said, Ryan, honestly, so blessed. I cannot think of a time in my life where I didn't feel God's presence with me. And I thought to myself, 
wow. <laughs> if, you know, if that describes you, if you feel ever close to God, you feel ever close to God, and that describes you, I want to say praise the Lord. That is fantastic. I am grateful that that has been your experience in life. Please hear me. It's not that I wouldn't trust you, but there are others whom I would trust more. <laughs> there are people I just would, would naturally trust more in my life. In 1946, God called a Catholic nun named Teresa, who'd already been teaching a good bit in India, uh, to raise up other sisters with her to bring Jesus to, to, to the poor, uh, the blind, the leprous, uh, the disabled, in, in a place called Calcutta, India. And she's famous. She'd become famous for selflessly serving these people for about 50 years following that call that Jesus extended in her, in her life. You know what else happened over the next 50 years? God would speak to her only one time in that 50-year period. In 1946, prior to when God extended that call on Teresa's life, she would experience God's felt closeness, uh, His presence, uh, his nearness, his provision, his answers to prayer, just all these evidence of God's closeness in her life. She would experience this. Now, to be clear, when you trust your life to Jesus, God is with you always, forever, and no matter what. Yet sometimes we feel, we sense his presence more than others, and there's times when we don't experience his presence at all. Okay? So 1946, Teresa began to feel absence from God. Not that he was absent from her. I want to be very clear about that. He's always with us. But that he felt absent to her. She once told her spiritual director, quote, I am told God lives in me. And yet the darkness of reality and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. You don't think of that when you see her face, do you? Now, this is a person I can trust. <laughs> this is someone, give me someone like Mother Teresa who continued to serve others, tell them about the love of Jesus, ask for nothing in return, and yes, as she did that as she endured the hollow pain of God's absence, of feeling his absence from her life. What we read this morning is a moment when the disciples realize that Jesus in the flesh won't be with them much longer. It's a light bulb moment. And you can see it turn on for all of them. Peter's incredulous. Lord, why can't I go with you? I'll die for you. You have, you have Thomas is nervously starting to ask Jesus clarifying questions like, I, I just want to make sure I ask this before you go. You have Philip who seeks just one more tangible reassurance. Lord, show us the Father. Just, just one more tangible reassurance. Show us the Father. That'll be enough before you go. Each disciple is beginning to sense the personal loss of Jesus' felt absence from their lives. So you read that room, and you combine it with Thomas's specific question of Jesus, and you get the question we're going to ask for all of us this morning is this, how can we know the way when God feels absent? How can we, 
How can you and I know the way that we're on the right path when God feels absent? We spent the last few months looking at questions, the big questions of life asked by Jesus, and in this case of Jesus, in John's gospel. And we're kind of rounding a corner where it really hits the followers of Jesus. Like, we're not going to get to be with Jesus in the flesh much longer. We're, we're, we're rounding this corner, heading towards Christ's passion and the cross. Now, how can we know the way? How can we be sure we're on the right path? Especially, Jesus, when you're going to be absent from our lives physically. Now, sometimes we don't sense God's presence because of unconfessed sin. I need to say that when a good thing becomes a God thing, when when something even good in our lives we start to love more than we love God gets in the way, we don't experience the fullness of God's presence. We don't experience the joy of God's presence when something And our hearts and our lives just goes unconfessed, undetected. So I want to encourage us, if if you're here this morning and you haven't sensed God's presence in a while, just first I would encourage you to search your heart. Ask God if there's anything between you and Him that you need to confess in your lives. But having laid before God anything that might be displeasing to Him, you might, like Mother Teresa, still find yourself in a prolonged season of sensing God's absence in your life, feeling it even though he's not absent. Starting with Peter, Jesus senses this worry in his disciples. So he turns to all of them and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is the key moment of the passage. Our message in a nutshell, it's just Jesus' words. It's the turning point in our passage. I say it's the turning point because up to this point, Jesus has been throwing out a lot of singular yous. He's talking to Peter. He said, you Peter, this, you Peter, that. And then he realizes what's happening. He senses what's happening in the hearts of all of his best friends. And he turns to them and he says, in a plural you, and a y'all, let not your hearts be troubled. All y'all's hearts be troubled. He reads the room in this way and gives his followers three benefits to his felt absence. You heard that right. Three benefits to them feeling his absence. So I want to briefly share with you this morning, it might sound crazy, but, but benefits, three benefits to God's felt absence so that you, your hearts may not be troubled also. The first benefit's this, because if you haven't experienced God's felt absence before, you'll experience at some point in your life, you might be experiencing it now. First benefit, his felt absence reminds us of our true security in life. His felt absence reminds us of our security. Jesus tells Peter uh, where he's going and that Peter cannot follow where he's going. Peter's response is to try to to prove that he belongs, he he deserves, he should be in Jesus' presence with him and, and Jesus in his presence. And how does Jesus respond in verse 38? By telling Peter, hmm, do you deserve to be in my presence? Actually, no. You're going to fail me. Multiple times you're going to fail me. Why does Jesus tell Peter this at this time? Not because he wants to hurt Peter not at all, but he wants to, to disabuse Peter of any illusions 
that the security of their relationship is based on Peter's performance. I'll say that again. He wants to disabuse Peter of any illusion that the security of their relationship is based on Peter's performance, what Peter does well or doesn't do well. It has nothing to do with that, Peter. Now, when I, was, when I first trusted my life to Jesus, I was given a Bible and a notebook. And every day, I would carve out 30 minutes to read the Bible, uh, make notes, read more when I had questions. And I just sensed God speaking to me, even as a teenager, through the words on this page. And it began to really transform my heart. So grateful for that season of life. So I, I was so excited by it that I actually made this goal to, um, to add every year, add five minutes to my time alone with Jesus every day. And it got to the point that in my 20s, I was spending 60 to 70 minutes every morning with the Lord in my Bible, reading, journaling, praying, talking with Him. And I'm not, I say that not to brag, and I'm, I'm genuinely. In fact, the main reason I spent that much time with the Lord is because I'm naturally an unloving person. Like, I needed that time every morning to to go before the cross, receive his forgiveness, experience his love again, let it transform my, my usually very stony heart. I needed that because I'm an unnaturally loving person. I need, just to get to like, to zero miles per hour, I needed some time with him, all right? And then I was getting this time with the Lord until my first son Mason was born. Um, and then 60 to 70 minutes in the morning went to six to seven minutes in the morning, right? Because that's what happens. Life's mad. I was living the good life. I mean, sacrifices need to be made. You have a child in your life. Your time is not your own anymore. And I love Mason. But I recognized even, even in these early days, I, I, I wasn't sensing God's presence as much. I wasn't sensing his love and his favor and his smile, and I just, I, it was just draining away from me. But in retrospect, it turned out to be one of the most important seasons of my life. Because God, ta God taught me that the security of my relationship with him isn't based on the quality of our relationship, but in the quality of Jesus' relationship with the Father. The security of our relationship wasn't based on how we're doing here, it was based on how Jesus is doing with the Father. So the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus, later says this in the, later on in the New Testament, the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by Jesus' life? Let me try to break this down for us. Through Jesus' death, He forgives us. He forgives us. He cancels out that big no that begins in our heart and shows itself through our lives called sin. You feel that right in your heart. Like, no, I want to do things my own way. No, I want to do things my own way. And we feel that in our heart. We live that out in our life and we realize it and we're sad about it and we, Jesus forgives us for it. He cancels out that sin. But he also does something else. Because Jesus lived the perfect life of love before the Father and with the Father, the Father also credits to us Jesus' right record of living. So he not only cancels out sin, he credits us Jesus' right record of living. When I was a kid, uh, I was really getting into the sport of golf. 
all right? Reserve your judgments, all right? Because I love golf. Doesn't say something about me. I just love the sport, all right? So I was visiting my grandmother one time at the, at the beach. She knew that I love golf. She wanted to do something special for me. She arranged for me to play around with one of the pros, one of the professionals at this golf course. So we played nine holes. I was just a kid. And uh, he thought at the end of the nine holes, it'd be funny if we exchanged scorecards to kind of fool my grandma to trick her. Like that all of his scores would become my scores, and all of my scores would become his scores. A professional, of course. I accepted. Right? I said, yes, let's do this. So he humbly took my score while I received his. It was a great deal. It was a great exchange. Friends, that's what we get in Jesus Christ, a great exchange. We get his perfect score of loving the Father with all of who he is. That's why after Peter's failure, Jesus says to them all, don't trust in yourself and your own performance. Trust in God the Father. Trust also in me. He says, right? Here in verse 1. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Father. Trust also in me. He goes on to point out more about his relationship with the Father, saying to, saying to them, uh, verse 10 and 11, do you not trust that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. The words that I speak are the Father's words. The works that I do are the Father's works. In other words, my whole life is about pleasing the Father, and I've done it perfectly. And one day, you'll get my record for doing it. You'll get my scorecard. When you no longer experience God's warmth and fellowship, His reassurances through singing, His Word coming alive and active, you don't sense or witness provisions through prayer. You don't see Him at work in someone whom you serve or you share your faith with. And you don't get those blessings. Man, it's easy to despair. It's hard to ask yourself, like, What's wrong with me? Like, what am I doing, God, that, that's so wrong? Just like it's easy to get too, too high when you feel close to God and you start arrogantly doling out advice of what you're doing so right. When really God may just be saying, look outside yourself to a better relationship, to a better love story between a father and a son. That's what you get from following Jesus. Trust in the Father. Trust also in me. That's where your security lies. You are loved no matter what because of a love that begins with the Father and the Son. A second benefit, his felt absence stirs in us a longing for a better world. His felt absence stirs in us a longing for a better world. Uh, Viktor Frankl I was a Jewish psychiatrist who spent three years in Nazi concentration camps. He observed during that time that when, when people had the choice, uh, some people were able to just to endure and persevere through that horror, and some were not. And, and Frankel said that the difference was what he labeled meaning, living for meaning, which, by which he meant that some people live for happiness, Right? To get something out of life. To draw something from life. Right? But to live for meaning means to live for something uh, beyond yourself. To, to acknowledge not that you just get something out of life, but that life expects something from you. Right? 
to become a kind of person. There's something bigger to live for, something more important than just your personal happiness and personal freedom. There's something bigger. Uh, one issue with the American church is that there's a, something called prosperity light, a prosperity light message that has packaged salvation through faith in Jesus Christ with earthly prosperity so that when you trust Jesus, you not only get the blessing of life with him forever, but all the blessings of his resurrection you get now, right? Uh, no pain, uh, riches, total health and healing, you get all of that now. And even churches that don't preach this have been infected by this way of thinking. So don't, don't be naive to think it hasn't affected even our church in some ways. That we think because we're doing well, we're right with God. But when you lose happiness here on earth, that says something about how close you are with God. Something negative, right? And when that happens, you're tempted to throw in the towel that message, that prosperity light message, expects way too much of a relationship with God in this world. That you get all the blessings of the Bible now, all the blessings of the resurrection to you from the future, here in the present, it expects too much of life now. Jesus says, actually, Peter, you, you can't follow where I'm going now. You can't follow to the cross, the resurrection is sending into heaven. You're not going to get all of that now. Someday you will, but not now, he says to Peter. And then he actually stirs in his disciples a longing for a better world. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And the only way you're going to ex experience God fully is if I go there and prepare a place for you right now. So I've got to go away. Which is great news to a group of men whose life expectancy would at best probably reach their early 30s. That was the average life expectancy for these men at this time. So to know that Jesus was going away, he was going to prepare these, these rooms, a place in the Father's house for them was wonderful news. But for us, if you combine our modern life expectancy with this prosperity light message, we are a people conditioned to put too much hope into this life. Right? Life has gotten so long and we're told that actually you get to experience all the blessings of God. Now we're conditioned to put way too much hope into our life in this world. For most of us, for the majority of our lives, eternity feels like something that's just a, totally foreign to us. We don't even think about it. It's not even barely in the back of our minds until we reach a very late age, right? Thus, now think about that. It's not a surprise then that God occasionally withholds his presence from us, right? His withholding presence, his presence from us is a gift reminding us that he withholds some of his greatest blessings for a life still to come, right? Some of the greatest blessings of the resurrection aren't with us yet. They're for a better world, a life still to come. He's fostering in us a longing for a better world that we'll get one day. That makes sense? Third benefit. A third benefit is his felt absence matures us. A couple years ago, Disney continued to milk their efforts, uh, continue their efforts, sorry, to milk every last drop, every last drop out of the Star Wars franchise, 
right? They're just going to, they spent those billions, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna inundate us. Every character you've ever seen in Star Wars, if you're familiar with that movie, they're going to show up through Disney, all right? So get ready for Jar Jar Binks' comedy special. If you know anything about, about Star Wars, you understand what I'm talking about. But a couple years ago, there's a pretty good one, I have to admit, called The Mandalorian, which is based on this Lone Ranger figure. It's almost really a Western, but a Lone Ranger figure who emerges from a group of bounty hunters who tries to protect and raise this vulnerable alien child, picking up some unlikely friends along the way to help raise this alien child with him. It's basically the 1980s movie, Three Men and a Baby, <laughs> but set in space. Remember that movie? It's the, I realized this week, it's the same thing. It's a reboot of Three Men and a Baby. Just in space and, and raising an alien child and without Ted Danson. All right, so we don't get Ted Danson and Tom Selleck. Steve Gutenberg. Anyway. All right. So these Mandalorians, they live by a specific code of ethics, repeatedly saying, this is the way. You've seen the show. You've heard this. You've seen memes about it. This is the way. This is the way means not attacking fellow Mandalorians, keeping your, your promises, and apparently never removing your helmet. That's what it means. It was a code of living. And this kind of code is actually what Thomas has in mind when he asks Jesus, how can we know the way? Because there's a group of people, the Jews, this group of people like the Mandalorians who have this code of ethics that's been debated. And so Thomas is clarifying, Jesus, how can we know the way? This would have made sense. The way would have made sense to Jesus's group of Jewish friends, because rabbis of his day debated about what the way was at this time. Everyone agreed, all the rabbis agreed that it referred to some sort of code, a moral code, moral behavior, a way of living. Some debated whether the teaching of the way was, was Moses, whether it was the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, whether it was the law itself. It was all about finding the right way to live for Yahweh. Jesus knows this is what Thomas is hinting at. What is the, the true way of living? And so he responds, I am the way. Put it differently, you don't need to know all the do's and don'ts of the way, Thomas. Just watch me. You don't need to keep in mind all the rules, all the bullet points, all the, the check boxes. You just need to watch me. I am the way. Jesus, in fact, double down, doubles down on this idea, saying, essentially, if, if you watch me and you trust your life to me, you will be able to do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Verse 12 is one of Jesus' most quoted verses by those looking to God to do amazing works through us, which is why the timing on the surface is very odd for when Jesus says this. He doesn't say this post-resurrection victory in the flesh when he's ascending into heaven, Rather, rather, when they're realizing for the first time, oh man, we're going to lose Jesus. He's going to go away from us in the flesh, and they're missing his presence already. It's actually a brilliant move by Jesus to share this with them at this time. He's setting them up to do the works of God without feeling his presence, without him holding their hand and being a buddy to them as they do it. Right, Doing the works of Jesus even though you don't feel God's presence, actually matures you as a person. That's what makes you a solid person. Isn't, 
It's not when early in your relationship with God, you get all the, all the feel-goods of walking with God, right? Provisions, uh, God speaking to you through different people, His words coming alive. You experience a, a blessing and fruit, and you're sharing your faith with some of your friends. But real growth, mature growth, rooted growth, begins to happen when you start doing God's works and you don't feel Him with you. You don't sense His presence. Now, many of us are we're conditioned to being authentic above all else. So if you, if you don't feel forgiveness in your heart, you're not going to forgive someone. If you don't feel love, you won't love. But actually, that's not right. As great author C.S. Lewis once wrote, don't waste time bothering whether you love someone or not. When you behave like you love them, usually the feelings will follow. And we know this to be true. All of us have experienced this. So you feel like something... You feel something between nothing and anger at a spouse or coworker, but then you do something for them. Like, for example, you feel something between nothing and anger for your spouse, but you, you do the dishes on their behalf. Or, or, you, or, or you're the same thing with a coworker. You pick up the slack. And as you do something for them, what begins to happen? The feelings of anger dissipate. The feelings of love start to come in for them. As you do something for them, typically the feelings follow. You can no longer... See or feel Jesus, okay. Do his works and ask for his help anyway. Not only are you going to be growing more mature and less reliant on the feel goods of God, you'll actually do greater works, he says. In 1974, 25 years into her dark night of the soul, Teresa of Calcutta responded to a priest who was going through that same spiritual dryness that she was going through. It does not matter what you feel, she wrote. It does not matter what you feel. In you today, Christ wants to relive his complete submission to the Father. Friends, let, let your hearts not be troubled. It does not matter what you feel. We're reminded our security lies in Jesus' complete submission to the Father. Our, our longings for a better world are stirred. We steadily become more mature people because we endure seasons where God feels absent, painful as that may be. Let's pray. Father, lift up all my friends here and anyone listening to us online who does not sense your presence right now in their lives. Father, I do, I do pray, first of all, that we would confess any, any sin, any known junk in our lives that might prevent us from experiencing the joy of your presence. And I also ask of you that you would be gracious to, to send them reminders that you are with them. But if it's your, if it's your will for us not to sense your presence, for some season in our life, even now, Father, we know that there is a wisdom to that in your love, that you're, that you're maturing us and doing, rooting us in a deeper work, that you're reminding us our security doesn't depend on our performance and the quality of our relationship with you. Father, you're stirring in us a longing for a better world because we've been so conditioned to put too much hope in this one. Even in your felt absence, even when we feel an absence from you, God, we can trust that you're present and that your wisdom 
and love is governing our lives. Let not our hearts be troubled as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.